Okay, so um, let's start like this. Uh, a year ago when we did this retreat, we had about 70 people. Okay, And that was like on a really, really good night. Uh, we had about 70 people in attendance. Um, we've grown since then. And that is a testament to the fact that we have a ministry of young people who are bent on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're seeing the ministry growing. And uh, I see many faces here. Uh, some, like Luke and Lexi, this was like the first thing they did last year. Uh, that was aw- That's awesome to see Luke uh, working in the kitchen and owning this retreat, having it just been brand new and fresh last year. Well, we've got a lot of faces of people who were not here. If you weren't here last year, raise your hand for this retreat. Okay, so... Um, I, I, I believe that God is at work, okay? And um, with that in mind, as a ministry grows and new people come to Christ, and people who've known Christ for a while buy into the philosophy of discipleship and believe, uh, buy into the philosophy of Bible study as a lifestyle, as a, a way of living an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, that means our ministry grows younger. Okay, and so last year our spring retreat was about something that I felt God was impressing upon us, singleness and marriage. Okay, that was what the retreat was about. It was about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be single or to be married. Either way, how is he going to use you? That was what the retreat was about because I felt like that's what we needed. That's what I think the Lord was telling us. Um, This year we're doing something very, very practical and very studious. In doing a retreat, it's how to study the Bible. In fact, it kind of goes against retreat rules uh, to do something this studious. Generally, when you do a retreat, it's got to be something that's somewhat practical, but that's also like something very exciting to get us inspired, uh, a breath of fresh air, so you can go into the next quarter of your year before the next retreat comes, right? And that's usually how retreats work. Um, This retreat is the exact opposite of that, though I do believe it will be a breath of fresh air, and I think it will be inspiring It'll also be very um, academic and very intentional, and it'll require you take lots of notes and be very focused. This is going to be a workshop, and um, and we're going to be learning a lot. Um, But my responsibility tonight is to talk to you about why we need to study the Bible. And um, that goes back to this idea of why why do we need this retreat. And uh, that's kind of what I'm talking about. And the first thing I want to talk about is a term that all of us might be familiar with. It's a fairly new term uh, to American culture, and that's the term fake news. Okay, we're going to start with fake news. Um, In the last year or so, you've probably heard this phrase a lot, but America has adopted this phrase, and we we can't go a day without hearing it. Uh, This word has been primarily employed by warring politicians, okay, who seek to negate any sort of oppositionary influence. So, so any time uh, a politician uh, is afraid that some sort of bit of information in the press is going to uh, affect their policy or their agenda, they cry fake news. That's what they cry. And in so doing, in so doing, uh, it's become a phrase that declares distrust towards truth. So when something is actually factual, it doesn't make any difference, someone is going to cry fake news. 
right? And anytime that there's a hoax and there's something fake, someone's going to cry truth. And we've grown more and more accustomed to the idea that we can't really trust any of the information that comes our way. We live in a world where it's sometimes hard to know the difference between a truth and a lie. And this is very, very important for us to be aware of. Um, An example of this is not too long ago, one of the smartest people that I know, okay, one of the smartest Bible-believing people, that I know. I mean, I would consider this person to be an intellectual. Um, outspoken person posted an article on Facebook. Um, there was an unfounded blurb, a bit of clickbait news. Okay. Um, it was right after the last school shooting. And uh, all kinds of fake information was coming out about the shooter, Nicholas Cruz, all kinds of crazy stuff. And this this man, this man that I actually genuinely respect, posted an article, and um, I, 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 it felt funny, right? Like, you guys know that feeling when you read something that you think might not be accurate? And so I had to, uh, I had to investigate it, and so I, I got online and began, you know, you got to do a lot of work to figure out if something simple is a lie anymore. And... Um, when I saw it, I investigated it, I quickly realized that it wasn't just hearsay, that it was a straight-up lie. It was a straight-up lie. And uh, when people on Facebook began to notify him of his error, he obviously, being a, a man of integrity, quickly took it down and apologized, and that bit of information disappeared. Who knows how many people that that bit of information influenced in the meantime, um, but he was quick to take it down, and, and that speaks to his integrity. But here's my point. Now, if this highly intelligent person can be easily swayed by fake news, false information, information that panders to his political predispositions or his emotional predilections, then we are all susceptible to false lies, to false truths. Right? Yes. We're all susceptible to lying. All of us. Every single one of us. There's a guy named Malcolm uh, Muggridge. You may have heard of him before. Um... But he is, uh, was an intellectual, a journalist, um, who was a, uh, originally, for many, many years, uh, an atheist editorial writer. And he came to know Christ. And at the, in, in his latter years, he wrote a lot about his faith. And, and this is a quote from him. Uh, he says that people don't often, uh, people don't believe lies because they have to. Okay? People don't believe lies because they have to, but because they want to. Okay, people, don't, people don't believe lies because they, they have to. They believe them because they want to. See, our world is wroth with lies, packaged as truth. And people are quick to believe these things because they want to. Because they meet them where they're at. Lies always meet us exactly where we are. So, while society has always been full of liars, with the advent of the internet and the ubiquity of connected devices... The lies are more prevalent and accessible than ever before. Everywhere we go is a lie, meeting us exactly where we want it to meet us. Do you believe that? It's not a hard thing to witness. 
A little bit of Photoshop can go a long way, folks. Okay? I remember in uh, my very first job, this was before fake news existed. I worked for the roastery. Some of you guys knew that. I was a graphic designer for the roastery. And um, one of the, you know, early on when people were beginning to use social media for branding, all right, um, I was responsible for that, right? And, uh, you know, I've always, I'm not going to use the word hate. I've always despised uh, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, you know, she's a liar. That's why. She's a liar. Okay, but we can talk about that later. That's not the point. I thought it would be funny as a 23-year-old man, I guess, to Photoshop a picture of uh, a bag of roastery coffee in the hands of Oprah Winfrey. And she just got beaming with a huge smile, and she's holding a bag of roastery coffee. And I just fish, pushed that out on, on Facebook, just posted it. Not thinking anything of it, I just thought it was funny, right? And, um, well, everyone believed that, uh, that Oprah loved the roastery coffee, right? And so millions uh, of 40-year-old white women started buying roastery coffee. Now. <laughs> No, no, no. Uh, but, but, but fake news works. It works. A little bit of Photoshop does go a long way in a lie. And so our first point of the evening comes as a warning from Genesis chapter 3. Okay? In a fake news world, here's our point. In a fake news world, Christians are susceptible to the subtlety of lies. In a fake news world, Christians... Not just lost people, Christians too, are susceptible to the subtlety of lies. Let's look at um, let's look at the first lie. Okay, so you guys were in Genesis three just recently, so hopefully this is a little bit fresh for you. Uh, for those of you who've gotten to Genesis three in your small groups, ready? Genesis three verse one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Satan. You guys know Satan is the king of lies. Jonathan 8.44. It's been a long day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stutter a bunch. Okay? Jonathan. You know David's friend. No, John. The apostle John. Uh, 8.44. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He is describing Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. That was his intent, and that was his bent. Okay? And abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and a father of it. He's the father of all lies. And he began his uh, earthly career speaking subtle lies. He knows that subtlety in a lie is important. Why is subtlety in a lie important? It's important because lies, if they're obnoxious, then no one will believe them. I mean, there'll always be somebody to believe them. There's always a sucker, right? All right? But, But the more obnoxious they are and the more loud they are, the less likely they are to believe. And so he he packages his lies inside truths and Lies for him have to be uh, have to have a degree of logic, 
to them. A splash of reason. I mean, maybe Oprah did drink some roastery coffee and really liked it. You know, maybe, right? Um, and so he, he packages his lies uh, very carefully in subtlety. And look at what he said. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now look, he, he asks a question. He begins with a question. Because he's inviting her to consider something. Hey, think about this for a second, right? That's what he's kind of doing. And he's like, you're, you're, you can't... Now explain this to me. You, you, you can't eat of every tree? Like, you can't... Really? Is that, is that what's going on? And he causes her to begin to question. Okay, so lies are most effective when they begin to appeal to our perceived needs. They're the most effective when they appeal to the, to the perceived needs that we have. And he knows that. And so Satan wants to convince her that there is a void in her life. So he asks her directly about the one thing. The one thing. He doesn't, he doesn't spark conversation any other way. But he just asks her. He's like, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Certainly not. That can't be true. Right? And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to expose the one thing that she can't have. And he doesn't do it abruptly. He is not obnoxious about it. He just poses a question and asks her to consider for a moment. And listen, listen to how the, the conversation unfolds. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of, of, the tree of, the, uh, of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye should die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So there's the lie. There it is. A subtle bill of goods. Now listen though. Satan's primary objective, his primary objective, is to sow a seed of division between humanity and God. And he does that using a lie. See, Satan has the, the world carefully bound today. Okay, we're, we're thousands of years removed from this moment. One simple lie. And we assess our world around us. And we look at our, our society. We look at our country. We look at our world. And we recognize that Satan has the world carefully bound in a web of complex lies that he's sown from, from the very first day in the garden. From that very first conversation that he has with mankind, when he established the very first lie for the, from the beginning of the fall of man till today, he has sown a web of complex lies and all of humanity is bound within them. Man, he's good. He's the father of lies. In 2016, Oxford Dictionary announced that the word of the year would be post-truth. Okay, the word of the year would be post-truth. There you go. And it's defined, uh, this is how post-truth is defined. Uh, as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion uh, than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Okay? So we live in a society that has become increasingly delusional as it concerns truth. The heartbeat of post-truth is this, guys. Post-truth is pluralism. 
Is anybody familiar with that term, pluralism? It's kind of a heady term, right? It's one you might hear about on campus at university. You might hear people in a philosophy class using this term. You might read about it in one of your textbooks, okay? But, but pluralism is just ex- exactly what it, it says. It's plural, plurality, okay? And it's relativism. And what it says is that every person has a right to believe whatever they want to believe, and their truth is equal to every other truth. So, so listen to me. Pluralism is, all truth is good truth. Pluralism is, pursue your own truth. Don't let me step on your toes. Don't let anybody tell you that you're wrong. Pursue your own truth. That's what, what pluralism is. A young student at a university had just finished his philosophy course and sat down with his friend and classmate at lunch. And they're having a conversation. He says to him, you know, everyone has the right to his own truth. So, I don't believe, personally, I don't believe that I can disagree with anyone. I don't have that right. I, don't, I can't disagree with anyone. Because everyone's truth is their own truth. And his friend and peer appealed to th- this statement by, by saying, sure you do. And he responded, no, I can't. And his friend said, you just did. Right? Did you catch that? So he disagreed with him and established the fact that plurality can't exist. It's circular in its reasoning. There has to be truths and untruths in the world. Everyone doesn't get to just have their own truth. That's not how the world exists. There are rules. There are laws. Right? I can't just say gravity no more and start flying. Right? There are, there are truths in this world, and you can't just make your own truth up. And that goes for spiritual truths as well. Yeah. See, this is how quickly pluralism, this conversation that these two friends have, that's how quickly pr- pluralism falls apart. Yeah. When pluralism is played out daily, though, in art and in culture and in society, then it begins to impact our convictions. We might recognize that all truths can't really be true. But we're still impacted every day at a cultural level. It's impacted our character, how we talk to people. It's impacted our pursuits. You know, if every truth is is susceptible to relativism, then we all get to do just whatever we want. And I can justify any kind of pursuit that I have. Anything. So in order for all truths to be celebrated, we must first agree that there is no truth. Hence a post-truth society. One built on personal gratification. So in a a post-world truth, sorry, in a post-truth world, in a post-truth world, Christians are susceptible to believing whatever is self-gratifying. Does that make sense? Whatever feels good, I'm prone to fall to. And I will buy truths that justify self-gratification. Look at Genesis again. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. For God doth know, this is Satan talking, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And they, they, did, they didn't know how true that actually was. That's a, that's a truth packaged in a lie. He tricked them. This is what he says, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
And they did know good and evil that day. They discovered it for the very first time. They saw evil for what it was. The contrast became clear to them. Light and darkness became a reality to them when they'd only ever just known light. And he, but he appeals to them, and he, and he says, hey, you should, be, you should be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So in this part of the story, he gives her a solution for her perceived need. There's something that's being withheld from her. It feels like a void in her life. It's something that she desires to attain, and he gives her a solution. He says, just just look, if you just partake of it, then you'll become like a god. But it's a temporal solution. It's a fleshly solution. And just like Eve today, we've abandoned the truth because we know that it gets in the way of our flesh. See, the answers of Scripture, they interfere with our need to do things our way. And that's why people don't want to study the Bible anymore. That's, right. that's why Christians don't want to study the Bible anymore. That's why the lost world is constantly attacking the authority of God's Word. Because they know that the Bible will interfere with their liberality. That they can't have sex with whoever they want to have sex with. They can't smoke whatever they want to smoke. They can't drink whatever they want to drink. They can't hang out with the people that they, that they want to hang out with because that the, they know that God's word has expectations on their life. Yeah. And the instant they begin to believe those truths and take them at face value, then suddenly they'll somehow be in bondage to who God is. Praise God that I'm a slave to him. Yeah. Give me truth over a lie any day. See, the answers of Scripture interfere with our need to to do things our way. See, this isn't just just true. Fake news and post-truth, that is not a phenomenon of just the lost world, you know. But it's also a problem in the church. The abandonment of the Bible is a a problem in the church. So for Christians, a post-truth society began to infiltrate our world at a greater and heightened rate about a century ago. About a century ago. As we slowly began abandoning the Bible as it was handed down to us through the ages. Today we have exchanged the Bible that people gave their lives for. For for thousands of years, Christians were dying for, were bleeding out for, the truths of a handed down text. We've exchanged that Bible for one translated by atheists. Right? Sam mentioned that on Sunday. That's, that's what we've done. We have exchanged, exchanged a text preserved by God for 2,000 years for one of convenience. That's what we've done. We've exchanged the Sunday sermon for entertainment and the performance of Sunday speeches. That's what the people want. We have relented the genuine study of God's word for the passive reading of quasi-Christian inspirational books. You go to 90% of any church in the city, they say, well, we have Bible Bible studies. 
or we have small groups, or we have community groups, or we have small group fellowships, or whatever freaking term they want to give it. And you go and you sit down with them in their home, and you might break bread with them. And they'll say, okay, now let's get into such and such book, the new Chuck Swindoll book. Let's get it. We're, we're reading in our Bible study, we're reading A Purpose Driven Life. Are you ready? See, we've traded the study of God's Word for quasi-Christian inspirational books. We've traded theological literality for readability. Christian friend at work, someone I respect greatly, a woman that, that prays for me regularly, found out that I read the King James Version and you would have think that I was like pro-abortion or something. It was amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. You know? I mean, she couldn't believe it. So we had, to, we had a conversation. I gently told her. I was like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still a Christian, you know. <laughs> she asked me why I read it. I gave a very brief and kind explanation, knowing that for some people this is just a hard topic. And I said, if you don't mind me asking, why do you read your version? She didn't have much to say, uh, but she said it's easier to read. That's what she said. And if you ask the majority of people why they read the version that they read, they, they read it because it's easy. Now I respect that. There's something very genuine about that. Yeah. And, and um, I love believers that, that read the Bible, even if it's a different version. It's not a problem to me. Okay, But my point to you is this. That we have, if we look at the history and we look at the circumstances for what they really are, if we stop reading the fake news and, the, and, we, and we stop believing the post-truth, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have traded theological literality for readability. We have stripped God of His authority by trading the intent of His very words for personal interpretation and cultural palatability. That's what we've done. You know, 500 years ago, Christians fought to disrupt the authoritarian rule of the Catholic Church by taking back their Bible. Some of you might know this. It took the invention of the Gutenberg Press and about 100 years of oppression, but Christians fought to put Bibles in every person's hand. That's what they did. They fought for that. The result was a spiritual and intellectual revolution we commonly refer to as the Reformation and the Age of Enlightenment. That began with the Bible. Don't let anybody tell you that that was a direct result of trade routes, routes being opened up to Asia. Don't let anybody tell you that because we suddenly figured out how to sail trade routes better, that money was pouring into... No, listen to me. The blessing of the Enlightenment came at the hands of people fighting to take the Bible out of the hands of priests and put it into the hands of the common man, that every person could study the Word. That's what happened. But over time, we have abused what we fought for. The church has lost its heart for study. They've lost, lost their appetite for God's Word. They have lost their awe for the Scriptures. They have lost God's words, and in turn, they have lost his mission. 
They have traded the battleship for a cruise ship. American Christianity is weak, and it is weak for one reason, because we don't know how to study the Bible. That's it. We don't know how to study our Bibles. We have become as the believers in Hosea. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. We have become those described in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies. For they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil and they know not me, saith the Lord. Listen to me. If you do not know the words of God, then you cannot know the heart of God. That's right. And when you do not know the heart of God, you cannot know how to live for God. Yeah. If you do not know the words of God, the very words, the specific intent of every single jot and tittle of what He handed down to you, the very mind of Christ... If you do not know the words of God, you cannot know the heart of God. And when you do not know the heart of God, you cannot know how to live for God. So don't let anyone confuse you. Every single word and every bit of punctuation impacts the way that you live. Doctrine is important. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 17. Bow down thine ear. And hear the words of the wise, and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them with, within, me, uh, within thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips, that th- thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made, no- made known to thee this day, even to thee. Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge? That I might make thee uh, know the certainty of the words of truth. That thou mightest answer the words of, tr- uh, of truth to them that send unto thee. Amen. If you do not know the words of truth, then you cannot give the words of truth to anyone else. Right. It won't happen. If you cannot know the certainty of the words, every single word, then how can you answer to people who need to know what's truth and what's not? How do you decipher for them between the fake and the real? So why are we having a How to Study the Bible retreat? Because we will not be satisfied by subtle lies anymore. We will only settle for the satisfaction of knowing God's very words. As a ministry, we have to be determined... No matter what circumstance, no matter what bill of goods is trying to be sold to us, that we will stand on the truth and we will not buy lies. Folks, it's time that we take responsibility for learning 
to handle God's Word. We've got to own it. So we've got a room full, a very eclectic room full of people.